Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 25 of Criminal Broads. We are one-fourth of the way to 100, and we will make it there someday. I believe in us. Um, Friends, thank you for listening. This is Criminal Broads, a true crime podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law, as you have probably become aware of. And my name is Tori Telfer. I am your faithful host, and I am also here celebrating the one-year birthday of Criminal Broads. Yeah, I launched this podcast a year ago, uh, May 1st, 2018. Isn't it crazy that it's already been a year? So before I say anything else, I just want to say thank you for listening. You have all been so supportive and kind and generous. And every time I get an email or a note or whatever, uh, I just feel so grateful to have the cool, awesome, engaged listeners that I do. So thank you so much for being there um, for the past year or the past week or however long you've stuck around. Um, So since it's a year anniversary or birthday, it's a good time to tell you this announcement (laughs) that I have. So at long last, Criminal Broads is joining a podcast network. This is um, going to be a great opportunity for the podcast and a way for it to just be more supported and thus more um, likely to be in your podcast app forever and ever. Amen. So let me tell you a little bit about the podcast network and what it means for you guys. Um, The podcast network is called Lit Hub Radio and it is recently launched on the site Literary Hub. Now Literary Hub, if you're a book person, you've probably heard of, it's a website that's like all things books and reading and the literary world. And they have a sister site called Crime Reads, which is about crime fiction and true crime and all things crime book related. And I've been writing for Crime Reads for quite some time since they launched last year. Um, so anyway, Lit Hub Radio, which, as I said, just launched, is a lot of books or a lot of podcasts about books and interviews with writers and all that cool stuff. So there's podcasts like Reading Women, um, Literary Disco is another one. And then over here in the true crime corner, which is painted black, you've got criminal broads. Um, What this means for you is that you are going to hear the occasional ad on this podcast now. Uh, So the podcast will now be supported not just by my badass gang of patrons on Patreon, but by ads for criminal things like um, pepper spray or cheap defense lawyers. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Regular ads for regular things like books or food. I don't know. Um, So anyway, I hope you'll greet the ads with good cheer because it means that the podcast is, like I said, just being supported. So anyway, with all that out of the way, let's get on to the good stuff. The crime stories. I promised you that this episode we were going to be returning to the world of criminal women, the world we started out in, the world we know best. And so that's what we're doing today. Today, we are headed east to the country of Japan and to the decade of the 1980s. Now, this was a time and place where murder was pretty rare. So rare that, hmm, let's just say if you were a certain type of psychopath, you might convince yourself that you could get away with it.
The country of Japan was, on the whole, a very safe place to be. For example, in 1989, your chances of getting murdered there were 1 out of 100,000. And even if, God forbid, you did get murdered, the police would almost certainly capture your killer, as about 96% of murders were eventually solved. In contrast, that same year in the U.S., your chances of being murdered were 9 out of 100,000. Still low, but better to take your chances in Japan. Because of how safe things were, the aesthetics of the law in Japan were rather non-threatening. Japanese police officers would often go about their patrols totally unarmed, sometimes riding about on bicycles. And Japan didn't have anything like the FBI either in those days, no central organized group designed to collect intelligence and keep an eye on the especially bad guys. In fact, some dissatisfied citizens whispered that Japan's gangsters, like the organized crime group who called themselves the Yakuza, did a better job at fighting crime than the police themselves did. Because murder was so rare, Japanese laws about murder could be unusually lenient. The country had a 15-year statute of limitations on murder, meaning that if a murder was committed more than 15 years ago, prosecutors couldn't charge anyone with it. In other words, you could slaughter your neighbor, smother your mom, and shoot your boss in the back of the head all in the same day, and as long as you didn't get caught for the next decade and a half, you could resume your normal life after those 15 years were up. You could even walk around boasting that you did it, you did all of it, if you so desired. Thankfully, because of Japan's low murder rate and high crime-solving rate, this was rarely an issue. But the law remained. The problem was that murderers knew about this convenient little 15-year rule. It incentivized them to go on the run and stay on the run. And for one woman who'd learned very early on that life could be tough, brutal, and merciless, 15 years didn't seem like too much time to kill when the reward on the other side was freedom. Kazuko Fukuda was born in 1948 in the Japanese city of Matsuyama. Her parents divorced when she was still little. Her dad vanished, her mom buckled down and got to work, running a brothel out of their home. Kazuko learned early on that women who wanted to survive had to work, and she seemed to absorb a message that the only work she herself was qualified for was work that involved pleasing a paying male customer. It couldn't have been an easy childhood. By the time Kazuko was 18, she was out of the house and living with her boyfriend, and the two of them together were bad news, looking for fast cash and a quick score, which they found in 1966 when they robbed the home of an important tax collector. They were caught. Japanese police may not have been as intimidating as Japanese mobsters, but they were certainly efficient. And they were thrown into prison, where Kazuko would experience horrors that would change her forever. Matsuyama Prison, where she was sent, was a notoriously corrupt place. For years, members of one of Japan's most powerful organized crime syndicates, the Yakuza, treated the prison as their own personal playground, paying off guards so they could drink, smoke, gamble, and rape the female inmates whenever they wanted. One of their victims was 18-year-old Kazuko. There was nothing she could do about it. 
It wasn't like she could ask the guards to help her or file a complaint with a friendly lawyer somewhere. She was trapped and completely vulnerable at the mercy of merciless men. Within two years, Kazuko was released, and she got married at the age of 20 to a man who she divorced five years later before quickly marrying someone else. With this second husband, she was finally able to take a breath. They had a couple of children together, she was starting to put her past behind her, and she began living comfortably, and then really comfortably, and then lavishly. She liked to drink and gamble and fill her wardrobe with the nicest clothes that money could buy, the nicest clothes that other people's money could buy, that is, because before long, Kazuko was deeply in debt. She owed about 2.5 million yen to various consumer credit firms and, awkwardly, another 1 million yen to one of her acquaintances, bringing her to a total debt of over $30,000 in today's money. By the time the year 1982 rolled around, Kazuko was 34, the mother of four precious children, and up to her neck in bills. She was working in a cabaret as a hostess, which meant that she was paid to flirt with customers, bring them their drinks, light their cigarettes, charm them with scintillating anecdotes, sing karaoke if they asked for it, let them watch her as she slowly walked away, and otherwise entertain them with her feminine charms, though most of these clubs stopped short of allowing any touching or nudity. One perk of the job was that customers were strongly encouraged to buy their hostesses drinks, and Kazuko loved to drink. The job seemed to flit with her flashy nature, and it paid better than being, say, a secretary, but it certainly didn't pay enough for her to scrape together an extra $30,000 to keep those pesky creditors from breathing down her neck. So, Kazuko started keeping an eye on one of the other hostesses at the club, a 31-year-old charmer named Atsuko Yasuoka. Something about Atsuko caught her eye and held it. Maybe it was the fact that the girl always seemed to have enough cash on hand. She never seemed stressed about money, haunted by her bills the way Kazuko was. Maybe Atsuko simply had an easy way of moving through the world that Kazuko envied. Maybe it was something as simple as, one night, when packing up to go home, Atsuko opened her wallet and Kazuko saw that she'd made a killing in tips that night. One day, Kazuko asked Atsuko if she could pay her a visit sometime. We'll never know what Kazuko and Atsuko chatted about on August 19, 1982. Whether Kazuko showed up with some saccharine story about just wanting to get to know her co-worker better, or whether Atsuko realized something was wrong from the minute the older woman stepped across her doorway. All we know is that when Kazuko sprung at her co-worker to kill her, the method she chose was cruel, physical, and prolonged. When the time was right, Kazuko whipped out a rope, lashed it around Atsuko's neck, and pulled and pulled and pulled, and the minutes ticked by until her rival finally stopped struggling and went completely limp. 
Once the deed was done, Kazuko was all business. She began methodically stripping Atsuko's house of anything that looked valuable. Furniture, nice pieces of clothing, and of course all the cash she could find. She took 300 separate items in all, and the whole load was worth almost 10 million yen, $90,000 in today's money, three times what she needed to repay her debts. Flushed with her accomplishment, Kazuko went home and told her husband what she'd done. The poor man was appalled. He begged her to turn herself over to the police immediately, but Kazuko just laughed in his face. She'd just completed the most difficult and yet financially rewarding job of her life. You think she was going to give up that easily? You think she was going to allow herself to be thrown into prison, knowing exactly what prison held for her? Ha! Instead of surrendering, she forced her horrified husband to help her hide her victim's body. They smuggled it into the mountains surrounding the city and buried it, or dumped it, among the trees. For a while, Kazuko went back to living her life. She was feeling good, so good, in fact, that she went out and got herself a boyfriend in addition to her husband. Why not? She'd always been partial to treating herself. But then she got wind that the police were starting to sniff around. By the time detectives arrived at Kazuko's house, she was long gone. She wasn't 18 anymore, a scared proto-criminal just trying to rub two coins together with a botched robbery. She was 34, a murderess and a fugitive, and she knew exactly what she was doing. Going on the run was easy for her. She had 600,000 yen in cash on her, which she'd taken from Atsuko's house while her victim lay on the floor, stiffening. And now that she was on the run, it's not like she needed to worry about paying off those annoying old debts anymore. Those were Kazuko Fukuda's debts, and she wasn't Kazuko Fukuda anymore. She gave herself a set of ironclad rules. Never stay anywhere for longer than three months. Never let anyone take your photograph or your fingerprint. Use a different name at every job. And do something about the irritating fact that your face is still Kazuko Fukuda's face. Kazuko had a couple of reasons to get a little plastic surgery done. Her stolen cash wasn't going to last forever, and if there was one thing she'd learned from her single mother, it's that a woman alone in the world has to work. The problem was that her resume said hostess, and hostess jobs were being snapped up left and right by girls of 22 or fresh-faced foreign girls who thought it would be fun and exciting to experience Japan's nightlife from the inside out. At 34, Kazuko was getting a little old for her own industry, and it's not like she could ask for her former job back. A facelift would solve two problems at once. With smoother, tighter skin, she'd have better luck getting a job in the nightlife business. And with a few subtle adjustments to her nose and eyes, she'd be able to walk right past the police of other cities without them having any idea that she was that fugitive hostess from Matsuyama. It was the perfect plan. So she made her way to Tokyo, where she booked an appointment at Jujin Hospital, the oldest cosmetic surgery hospital in the country. It was the perfect place for a fugitive who needed a little work done, revered, skilled, and discreet. It certainly wasn't cheap, but as always, 
Kazuko felt like she deserved the best of the best. That was the thing about Kazuko, the thing that set her apart from other fugitives. Lesser criminals might be content with moving towns and slapping on a cheap wig, but she understood that to really make it in this world as a free person, sometimes you had to go under the knife. At her first surgery, she had the plastic surgeon do a little reshaping of her nose and her eyes. He did it without blinking, probably thinking that she was just a nice rich lady come in for a seasonal touch-up to forget her nice rich lady problems, a bit of boredom, a husband's wandering eye. He had no idea he was operating on the face of a killer. After Kazuko healed up, she made her way to Kanazawa City, where she snagged a hostess job at a snack club, which was basically a cheaper, less fancy version of the cabaret she'd worked at before. It was a step down from her previous job, but at least it was something, and perhaps it was better, for now, to stay under the radar. Her life fell quickly into a sort of nightmarish routine. Work a while get paranoid that someone was following her, move apartments, switch jobs, move cities, book another plastic surgery appointment to make sure she was as young, beautiful, and unrecognizable as possible. Still, she couldn't help putting down a couple of roots. In her line of work, it was important to have regular customers who'd keep paying you to flirt with them, and by the fall of 1985, three years after the murder, one of her regular customers had fallen head over heels in love with her and was now asking her to move in with him. Kazuko broke her own rules when she moved in with this man, though maybe she thought that being someone's live-in girlfriend was its own type of disguise. Her new boyfriend was a kind man who owned a long-running candy store, and before long, Kazuko had started working at the store herself. From the moment she took the job, it was like she'd touched the place with a magic wand. The customers were increasing, the profits were booming, the whole place seemed charmed. Her regular customers remembered her for years, including a little boy named Hideki Matsui, who would grow up to be one of Japan's most famous baseball players. Years later, he could still remember the lovely lady who worked at his favorite candy store and always seemed to have the prettiest smile and the most delicious treats. Nobody at the store had any idea that her slim hands, so graceful when handing out dainty boxes of candy and sweet rolls filled with red bean paste, were stained with blood. Things were going so well at the shop that Kazuko even dared to bring in a bit of her past life. She hired her 18-year-old son to come and work with her. Throughout all of this, her boyfriend still had no idea who she was, but he knew that he loved her loved her smooth, inscrutable face, and he wanted to spend the rest of his life with her. And so he proposed. Kazuko hesitated, though. A marriage would come with paperwork, photographs, things she'd given up years before. She said no. (laughs) 
In the meantime, police were still searching for one Kazuko Fukuda, wanted for murder and robbery. They placed her name on a wanted list that circulated all around the country and printed up wanted posters with a photo of her friendly, smiling face, her old face. She looks gorgeous and harmless in the posters, like someone you'd want to be friends with. One day, in early 1988, one of her boyfriend's relatives happened to catch a glimpse of one of those wanted posters and thought to themselves, huh, that looks a lot like... No, no, it couldn't be. But maybe it's best to be safe? The relative went to the police. The police took the tip very seriously, and they began circling around the sweet lady who worked at the local candy store. Kazuko found out that she was being hunted with minutes to spare. She was attending a funeral when she found out, wearing a black kimono, and when she realized the police were headed her way, she leapt onto a bicycle and took off. Once she was riding, she couldn't stop. Driven by adrenaline and panic, she biked across the entire width of Japan, from Kanazawa on the north side of the island to Nagoya in the south, a punishing distance of almost 150 miles, her black kimono fluttering behind her like the wings of a giant bat. In Nagoya, Kazuko found another job. She always did. This time, she found work at a love hotel— that is, a discreet and sometimes sleazy hotel where you can rent a room out for a couple of hours and do whatever it is you'd like to do in it. Unfortunately for Kazuko, her infamy had spread to the point where it was entirely beyond her control, and when one of her co-workers happened to find themselves at a local police station, they were shocked to see a wanted poster featuring the face of that nice woman who just started working with them. They went back to Kazuko and said, Um, <laughs> no offense, but maybe you should consider turning yourself in? Kazuko must have laughed in her co-worker's face. Her husband had said exactly the same thing five and a half years earlier. Turn herself in? <laughs> Did these people think she was crazy? Instead of slinking to the police station with her tail between her legs, she just waltzed over to another love hotel and asked for a new job— but the boss there wanted to get her photo and her thumbprint, which of course simply wouldn't do. And so by May of 1988, Kazuko was on the run again, flying back and forth across her country in search of something she would never have again, an untroubled life. She settled in Fukui City, where she worked as a hostess again. And then a few years later, she headed south to Osaka City, where she worked at a brothel, always on the move, always looking over her shoulder. Sometimes she'd go back to Tokyo to have a little more work done on her face. The tweak of an eyelid here, the lift of a forehead there. She wouldn't rest until she'd left the old Kazuko, or at least the old Kazuko's face, entirely behind. But she could never leave her true self behind. Her cruel, bold, infinitely selfish self. The self that loved to gamble and drink and show off the self with blood on her hands. At one point, she actually sat down at a bar with a policeman and had a drink with him, casually, and the enamored policeman told her that, look, he knew this was crazy, but she actually looked a lot like the famous Kazuko Fukuda, murderess on the run. In response, Kazuko pounded the table with her fist and told the policeman to take her fingerprints then and there, and then they'd see whether she was Kazuko Fukuda or not. 
He must have thought she was flirting with him instead of bluffing, because he didn't do a thing. Not every policeman was as casual as this one, though. The police officers of Matsuyama, Kazuko's hometown, were getting more and more nervous as the years sped by with no sign of Kazuko other than a flutter of black kimono sleeves and the screech of bicycle tires. Her 15 years were almost up, and if they didn't catch her before then, she'd go free. She could burst back into the public eye, write memoirs, go on talk shows, wear a shirt that said, I strangled Atsuko Yasuoka, and they wouldn't be able to do anything about it. It was like a clock was constantly ticking in the back of the policemen's heads. Five years left to find her. Four years left. Three. Two. One. With one year left to capture her, the police made a controversial decision. They decided to offer up a gigantic reward of 1 million yen, $9,000 today, for any information leading to the arrest of the murderous Kazuko Fukuda. Now, this might not sound all that controversial to anyone who's seen a wanted poster for an American fugitive with reward splashed across it in big black font. But in Japan at the time, offering reward money like this simply wasn't done. In fact, this was the first time in any criminal investigation after World War II that this had happened. Those who opposed this decision said that it was going to turn Japan into a country of citizen spies, with neighbors eavesdropping on neighbors and the police department swimming in a lukewarm sea of meaningless tips and sightings and leads. But others thought it was a great move, including, surprisingly, the Jujin Hospital in Tokyo where Kazuko had gotten her new face. The president of the hospital was so distressed that he'd helped a fugitive avoid justice for almost 15 years that he put up a whopping 4 million yen, $36,000 today, as an additional reward for her capture or Kazuko-related information. One reporter wondered cynically if the hospital was also feeling guilty at all the free publicity they'd received over the years as, quote, a cosmetic surgery provider whose work was so good it allowed a customer to fool everyone in the country for more than a decade. Police also kept printing those wanted posters and even put Kazuko's face on a prepaid phone card. So anyone who walked past a police station or picked up the paper or made a long-distance call would be greeted by the friendly, pretty face of the fugitive killer. Over the past 14 years, police had only gotten 1,000 tips about Kazuko. That's about six tips per month. After offering the reward, the police received 4,000 tips in a year, and one of them paid off. On July 24, 1997, a 59-year-old man in Fukui City went to the police with a story to tell. He was a regular customer at a local restaurant, and he'd noticed that one of the other regular customers, an attractive woman nearing 50, looked an awful lot like that Kazuko Fukuda person, even though she claimed her name was Yukiko Nakamura. The restaurant owner backed this customer up. Yes, she said, I think Kazuko Fukuda is one of my regulars. Five days later, police arrested Kazuko at the restaurant and took her in to be questioned. 
As they interrogated her, she kept insisting that she wasn't Kazuko, she was Yukiko, and that she wouldn't give them a fingerprint to save her life. She looked awfully glamorous in her tight white skirt, white bandana, and gold and silver jewelry. Her hair was cut fashionably short and dyed reddish-brown, a stark contrast to her wanted poster, where her hair is long, black, and full. She was drinking bottles of beer throughout the interrogation, and so, when she wouldn't give them her fingerprints, an officer simply took one of the beer bottles and snagged a print off that. Sure enough, the print proved that the woman in front of them was Kazuko Fukuda. They'd snagged her a mere 21 days before the statute of limitations ran out on her crime, and they managed to officially charge her with murder one day before the statute was over, a mere 11 hours before she would have been able to walk free forever. The media and the public went wild when they found out that the fugitive had finally been captured. The whole story was so sordid, juicy, and dramatic, especially with that whole plastic surgery subplot. Papers started calling her the Woman of Seven Faces, and when she was taken by train from the city of her arrest back to her home city of Matsuyama, there were so many reporters and gawkers on the train with her that, when she went to use the bathroom, she had to physically squeeze through the photographers to get there. During one particularly claustrophobic moment, she was hiding her face under a jacket, and the swarming reporters around her heard her start to scream. Her trial began in October. To hear Kazuko testify, 2,000 people lined up outside the courtroom, desperate to get one of the 33 seats inside. Inside, Kazuko pled guilty, but insisted tearfully that she hadn't killed Atsuko for anything as sordid as money. No, no, no. She'd gone over there intending just to chat with her good friend Atsuko, but then they got into an argument and, well, murder was done. Clearly, her defense team had decided that a crime of passion was more sympathetic than a crime of finance, but the prosecution shot holes in that story by pointing out all the debt she was in, the fact that she took all that money from Atsuko after killing her, and the fact that she'd coolly asked her husband for help with disposing of the body and taking away all the furniture. On May 31, 1999, the judge handed down her sentence, life in prison. Hers was a ferocious and cruel crime, he said, and there were no extenuating circumstances that could have made it any more explainable. She tried to appeal, adjusting her initial argument to say that, wait, 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 uh, she had actually been um, in love with Atsuko and had strangled her because she was so in love with her that she just couldn't help herself. The judge did not buy this revised story, saying that her tale of lesbian obsession, quote, cannot be believed without substantiating evidence. Her appeal was denied. By this point, the public interest in her as an actual person had waned. Screaming crowds weren't trying to get inside the courtroom anymore. But interest in her as a story had boomed throughout Japan. She was the subject of movies and TV shows, and every now and then an expert would give an interview on screen, using her as a sobering example of why and how some women turn to crime. Kazuko herself added her voice to the fray, publishing an autobiography detailing some of the horrors of her early life, with the rather self-pitying title, Valley of Tears, My 14 Years, 11 Months, and 10 Days as a Fugitive. 
In 2005, at the age of 57, Kazuko was working at her prison factory job when she had a stroke and dropped to the floor like a stone. She was rushed to the hospital as a burst vessel filled the space between her brain and its membrane with blood. She lay in a coma for several weeks and died without ever waking up on March 10th. Her long, long run was over. On April 28, 2010, the legislature of Japan officially amended the criminal laws of the country to abolish the statute of limitations on murder and all other crimes that resulted in the death of a human being. There would be no more of these 14-year, 11-month, 10-day fugitive sprees, no more panic that if they didn't catch the murderer in time, the murderer would go free forever. Some thought this amendment was a sign that things were getting more violent in Japan, but others saw it as a sign of justice and progress. Crime victim groups in Japan had been protesting that having a statue of limitations on something as awful as murder simply wasn't right, and the law had finally listened to them. From then on, a murderess could still try to get away with things. She could still walk calmly to her victim's house, do the bloody deed, cart away the expensive furniture, throw the body into the woods somewhere. She could still shave millimeters off her nose, ride a bicycle across the country, refuse to give a fingerprint. There just wouldn't be a convenient 15-year safety net for her anymore. She could still do it, but she'd have to keep running for the rest of her life. Oh, my favorite listeners, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this creepy story. When I saw the nickname, The Woman of Seven Faces, I was like, that's it, done, we have to feature her. I love a good creepy criminal nickname, um, as you probably guessed. So anyway, before I dismiss you, you know the drill, but you can follow Criminal Broads on Instagram to see photos of Kazuko and any other relevant photographs I can dig up. Um, you can support Criminal Broads at patreon.com slash criminal broads. There's also a link in the show notes, which is incredible. And I actually have a lovely batch of patrons I want to thank this episode. So today, my genius, beautiful, and really good at cooking patrons are Allie Johns, Sarah Wolf, Steve Platt, Melissa Gilpin, Melanie Crabb, Marley Barnes, Jan McCormick, and Angela Medina. Thank you all so much from the bottom of my heart for being patrons. You are awesome. All right. Um, I guess you can email criminalbroads at gmail.com if you want to talk. Get in touch with me any way you'd like. And I think that's all the business we have. Again, thank you so much for being here this past year. You're all so awesome. I really appreciate having you as listeners. And I hope you are staying well, staying healthy, and enjoying yourselves because you deserve it. All right. I'll talk to you next time. Goodbye. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Loving you, dear, like I do.
it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.